Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. I'm Natasha Mascarenas, and this is our Wednesday show, where this time we're niching down to a duo thinking about their work and unpacking the rest. Today, we're talking to a pair that has been investing exclusively in gap-closing impact startups and broadening the definition of success since 2011. Welcome to the podcast, Frida Kapoor-Klein and Mitch Kapoor. So a little background on both Mitch and Frida. Like I said, since 2011, they've been investing in gap-closing impact startups. But oh my gosh, they are such a huge part of both tech's history and tech's present. So Mitch, he founded the Lotus Development Corporation and designed the Lotus 123 spreadsheet, which ended up changing the way we think about technology. He also co-founded the Electronic Frontier Foundation, is the founding chair of the Mozilla Foundation, and does a ton of other things that are about empowering students to deepen their talents and pursue STEM careers. Frida, meanwhile, is a badass in her own right. She cares a lot about data and the empirical background of the way we think about things. She is the founder of Smash, which on-ramp students into the world of tech. She co-founded the Alliance Against Sexual Coercion in 1976, which is the first organization in the U.S. to address sexual harassment. She has a PhD in social policy and research and is a member of the Obama Foundation Tech Policy Council the UC Berkeley Chancellor's Board of Visitors, and a board observer of an air quality monitoring company that we'll talk about in this podcast. And I haven't even gotten to her PhD. There is so much, and I'm going to now throw to the interview for you to hear more about how they're thinking about this moment in tech and the reason behind their new book, All About Closing Gaps. Welcome, Frida Kapoor Klein and Mitch Kapoor. Delighted to be here. Thank you. It's great to talk to you. You both are people that I have not really talked to directly up until we press the recording button, but your work has been such a part of my past four years in reporting tech, just through the people I've talked to from Charles Hudson to the companies that I've covered, such as Ruben Harris from Career Karma. So it is such a pleasure to talk. Thank you. Charles and Ruben are two of our favorite people. It's funny because we, I think, Frida, we first met briefly backstage at the All Rays Summit. Uh-huh. And I think you were just getting on stage, so it was the worst time to introduce myself. But I will say, I think the big takeaway from that conference was just how many of the now diverse and impactful investors that we're seeing close their second or third funds, both of you first seeded and helped get off the ground, which I feel like is such a, I mean, it's such an interesting part of the story and a big part of your new book that I've read, not all of it yet, but I've gotten well through it. I really wanted to start there and just hear what inspired you both to, to write this book and even why publish it now too? It's a weird time in tech. <laughs> well, tech always has these peaks and valleys and weird roller coaster times, hard to predict since we finished the book last June. Okay. But we decided to talk about our journey for a couple of reasons. One, it was part of our plan to step back, and we've now stepped back and handed the reins to our two incredibly capable and wonderful partners, Ulili Anavakpuri and Brian Dixon. Yes. And so we wanted to mark that transition. But we also wanted to tell the story where we set out in 2011 to try and experiment. Can you invest 100% in gap-closing impact companies with a diversity lens and still make top financial returns? And as we showed first in our 2019 impact report, 
we were able to achieve that. We achieved top quartile financial returns with a 100% portfolio of tech startups that close gaps of access or opportunity or outcome for low-income communities and or communities of color. It's been over a decade since that initial plan was first launched. And Mitch, I would love to hear what you have changed your mind on when it comes to the definition of what a gap-closing startup looks like, because that is a phrase that we both see in the title, but throughout the book, this idea of focusing on that kind of company as a venture-backed opportunity. So when Frida first floated an idea to me, actually before 2011, 2009 maybe, yeah. what about investing, and I was doing angel investing, more in line with your own personal values about inclusion and fairness? I was skeptical initially. Like a lot of entrepreneurs, oh, I'm going to miss out on all the big deals. But she can be persuasive, and she is a researcher, and I share her empirical mindset. Yeah. And that's what gave rise to, well, how can we do that? And at first, the idea of what that would mean wasn't clear. But Frida did have the idea early on that looking at the gaps were important because Various groups, communities, individuals are systematically less able to access opportunities and are disproportionately negatively impacted by conditions in society. And we stumbled a bit. We followed our intuition. And it then became clear that what was central to our notion of impact mm -hmm. was the idea that a company should, in its fundamental business model, at its core, not at the periphery, be doing something to close those gaps of access or opportunity. And we focus on low-income communities and or communities of color. And we wound up really evolving our investment process, our discipline around that gap-closing concept. How we look at opportunities, for instance, not just is, does it have a big total addressable market, but if this business succeeds, who is going to be better off and who is going to be worse off? The specifics differ if it's an ed tech company, because then you're looking at, well, who is it serving? Is it serving kids in Title I schools? If it's a fintech company, we ask a different set of questions. It might be, is this going for people who have subprime credit scores and so on? Yeah. But it's the unifying theme that gives coherence to all of the investing that we do. Is it closing a gap? And I know you launched with the framing of being an impact investor. And as you, you talked about, and you've talked about publicly before, like that term can mean so many things. I mean, I've just been like, are there checks in place? Or are there some sort of like ways that we can actually, as a founder, know this person's an impact investor and means it in this way versus an impact investor and means it in a more superficial way? There's not really a question there, but I'm curious if it's something that you've seen change or even get better. Are we seeing more actual impact investors over time since first starting the firm in 2011 and thinking about it far before? I think we are seeing both. We're seeing more performative nonsense. We're seeing more people call whatever they do impact with no substance. We actually had one VC say to us, well, I know impact when I see it. Doesn't sound like sound, rigorous investment criteria to me. <laughs> so yeah. it's why we specifically defined what we mean by impact and what we mean by gap closing. And I'm often approached by entrepreneurs who believe that 
just because they're female, somehow that makes impact. But if they're developing a product with a business model that is catering to wealthy consumers, by my definition, they're gap widening. If only a privileged person or family or business can afford this new product or service, they are widening the gaps between haves and have-nots. So if I could add to that, as a practical matter, if a founder asks me, well, how do I tell if my prospective investor is serious about impact? I think there are some questions you could ask. You could say, well, how is it woven into your investment practice? How do you actually use whatever your definition is as you make decisions about who to invest in? How does it impact how you support companies after you've invested? Yeah. And if they can't be concrete and specific and give examples, but if it's just at a high level close to, well, I know it when I see it, that probably means they're not serious about it. Also, I would say to any entrepreneur, take a close look at the portfolio. See who this firm has already invested in and see whether you feel that your values aligned and whether or not those companies meet your definition of impact. It's making me think a little bit about something I ask when I talk to VCs. It's like, I'll be like, what's the diversity breakdown of your portfolio? And it's a graph I try and have in every story. But now that you're saying it, I'm also thinking if all your companies are founded by women of color, but they are also only building for affluent families, the, I guess all diversity is not created equally in that way. Well, that's right. I do think that lived experience is really, really important. So in that way, founders from underrepresented backgrounds bring a different lived experience to the businesses they create. What we look for is that lived experience. Does it generate the core idea for the business? Does it generate a passion about a problem to solve? And that leads to a very important concept for us, which is distance traveled. Yes, I loved that. I love that framing because it doesn't look so much at degrees, it sounds like. It's in some ways the antithesis of looking at degrees or especially pedigrees. What we want to know is where did you start out on life and where have you gotten to on your own steam? Not what privileges and unfair advantages did you rack up as an accident of birth? So the distance travel tells us that if you're somebody, for instance, like Phaedra Ellis Lampkins of Promise Pay, who stood in a free and reduced lunch line in school that was a separate line from the kids who could pay for their lunches, that that was a scarring and humiliating experience. She's been driven to create products, services that treat low-income people with dignity and respect. Or if you're Danelle Baird and you grew up with your apartment in Bed-Stuy being heated by an open oven door, and you might be compelled to make sure that other low-income families, other families of color, don't subject themselves to those health hazards. Or if you're Jake and Irma from... Fresno, who started Bitwise, yeah. they know their community intimately, and they know what are the practical barriers for people from Fresno and all the other communities they've expanded to. What's in the way of getting new skills 
and moving into tech? When I was first, you know, I, I had not like seen the story of Bitwise told as explicitly before until I read the book. And I found myself on this like Google hole of just like trying to figure out how they're revenue model worked. And I just like had so many questions because I'll be honest, as a startup reporter who covers early stage companies as they're debuting to the public, either I don't hear about a business model or if I do, it's something as simple as SaaS subscription. And there was something both difficult and also I think harsh about realizing that sometimes the most impactful companies have complicated business models. And that's something I wanted to talk to both of you about, specifically in how that makes your life as a venture capitalist either harder or easier. Because I'm guessing when you're backing a promise pay, or if you're backing a Bitwise, their arc to getting the massive revenue milestone might be a little harder to explain in like a snappy two-minute pitch that we come to know through demo days and the like. So yeah, tell me about that and if that's a symptom or a cause? So I think the difficulty some investors have in understanding the highly scaling business model of, of a Bitwise or of a Promise has in part to do with the model itself, but in part it has to do with the ignorance or let me be charitable, unfamiliarity <laughs> of investors with anything but a very narrow slice of how these things might work. So what I would say is that in the case of Bitwise, for instance, which runs the largest or just about the largest tech apprenticeship program across their 10 cities, they derive a huge and growing amount of revenue from the fact that they have a consulting business that does enterprise and government consulting. Yeah that hires their own apprentices, that builds systems for government and industry and competes with uh, you know, Deloitte and, and those sorts of folks. And they have a set of advantages in how they do that. But that's actually, that part is quite straightforward. Yeah. When you layer on the fact that the federal government has really opened up the spigot to the tune of trillions of dollars across the Inflation Reduction Act and so on, and they are now funding huge amounts of workforce development, will be funding huge amounts of climate tech, letting contracts. If you understand how to tap into that by providing services, for instance, in the case of Promise, by enabling low-income people to meet their payment obligations with dignity and respect, thereby increasing collections dramatically for states and cities and municipalities. Yeah. To understand that these companies, they have huge pipelines, they have growing revenue, but it's a different model to some extent than the SaaS model. I would say it's an advantage for creative and risk-taking venture investors to go to an area that's actually undercompeted among other investors to fund these types of companies. And it's not easy, right? You have to go to Fresno in order to really meet the Bitwise team and understand where they were coming from. And I, I want to bring us to 2023, where we are today, and hear how you think, I'm going to make you try and make you do a broad statement here, even though venture is so different and disagrees with each other a ton. But how optimistic are we feeling about venture investors making that sort of investment, the complex investments in the underserved, underlooked at, underestimated, really, areas and people? I'll go first. I mean, I think it's two steps forward, one step back and maybe a couple of steps sideways. <laughs> First, there really is a recognition, if you're looking at sort of what's hot in venture in general, in climate tech at this point, with I don't know how many tens of billions or hundreds of billions pouring into it. And I think ultimately that's actually going to be very productive 
the question is for us, what's the awareness level within the venture community of environmental justice issues, of ensuring that this huge flow of funds into companies that are building solutions has the impact of helping folks in low-income communities who suffer disproportionately from pollution from greenhouse gases, or how much is VC just still ignoring all that? And I think that's very much a work in progress. But you have companies like Acloma, which is yeah. in our portfolio that does hyper-local air quality monitoring, where they are now about to go up the steep part of the curve in terms of revenue growth, because there is an understanding they have a unique ability to meet these federal mandates where 40% or so of the federal funds that go towards climate change have to go to benefit people in low-income communities. And I think that message will resonate and VC will get that. And so it's just a slow, painful process. It takes far longer than it should if there is any justice in the world. But <laughs> overall, it is happening. I want to echo the two steps forward, one backwards, a couple sideways. And what I see in the venture community is a sheep-like behavior. And so there will be tons of money pouring into climate and now into AI. When venture capitalists pride themselves on being able to see around corners, to predict what's coming. So that would suggest that they would be looking for the unusual opportunity, not the herd opportunity. What I see, including earlier today, is that there are still way too many biases operating in assessing entrepreneurs and businesses and business models. We keep seeing our Black and Latinx entrepreneurs, especially female, who get held to a different standard. They have to prove themselves before they get the investment. They don't get as much of the benefit of the doubt. They don't get as much investment on potential. And I think that's a remaining huge problem. I think that's the hard part as I'm covering it. Starting a VC fund that's focused on closing a gap was new and inventive and risky in 2011. And it is again in 2023. And I don't know where to find hope. Not to make this a therapy session for me, but that is part of equity's um, equity's whole point is to make me feel better about tech. But yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm wondering, I think, a little bit about where both of you latch on to hope. And especially because I'm sure you've been having this conversation far longer than I have and have been, I don't know, combating these biases as well. Well, so I've been having these for decades, but that's because I'm old. (laughs) And I do see progress. I am an optimist. But some of the data and experiences of our entrepreneurs are sobering. I'm trained as a researcher, and I think it was 2019, myself, Uliliana Vakpuri from Kapoor Capital, Allison Scott from the Kapoor Center, we did a study on what's it like to be a female entrepreneur. Mm. All female entrepreneurs encounter various kinds of bias while pitching to VCs. They have their expertise doubted. They get inappropriate personal questions. But Black and Latinx females experience by a huge margin, much more inappropriate behavior. 
if we're talking about inappropriate personal touching, it's almost 10x the rate of white and Asian women. The same thing about being doubted, it's much greater for Black and Latinx women. I do think that these kinds of studies are helpful in holding up a mirror and saying to VCs, are you saying these things? Are you acting in these ways? What opportunities are you missing? One of the biggest contradictions that we encounter day in, day out, is the belief, despite all the data, that investing for gap closing or investing with a diversity lens is concessionary, meaning you have to give up financial returns. We've proven, as have dozens of others, that's not the case. And in fact, the inverse might be the case. So usually, Frida is the reservoir of hope that I draw from. (laughs) But I thought at this point, I just might mention, why are there sort of signs of hope? And Sometimes people do listen. So our uh, partner, Brian Dixon, wrote a blog post after George Floyd was murdered on the theme of responding to venture capitalists waking up one day realizing, oh, we don't have any Black founders in our portfolio. How do I get some? That was really the tone also. I remember that day like yesterday. Everyone was like, so... My DMs are open. (laughs) That's right. So, uh, you know, it is just they wanted someone to tell them, oh, you need to look in aisle 12. You're in aisle two. So Exactly. But what Brian wrote, he said, look, it begins with having more diversity on your own team, your investing team. And to that end, why don't you actually post positions for partners when you have them? Because as people in venture know, Traditionally, that never happened. You would just go to your network. You'd never see a job posting. But it, And of course, you were limiting the pool of people who might apply. Well, interestingly, as a result of that post, two firms, including First Round Capital and Initialized Investments, both posted a partner position, giving Brian credit for the inspiration and wow. wound up at uh, first round in hiring the first black partner. And they wrote about this in Forbes. So sometimes so they've changed their practice and they've changed their practice in a way that increases diversity and will have effects, you know, positive effects down the road. So sometimes people do listen if you speak up and that does give one reason for hope. Well, sometimes it takes a long time. Yeah. There was very quick response to Brian's post that was at a national crisis moment. But I got an email a little while ago from someone, a very prominent venture capitalist, who wrote me and said, I'm that idiot who told you I was colorblind 10 years ago at that demo day. Wow. I'm sorry. I appreciate all the work you've done to change venture capital. So that was heartwarming, but it also speaks to how lonely taking these positions has often been. And if it's lonely for us as two wealthy, old white people, I can only barely imagine what the pain and loneliness and frustration is for the people who keep being subjected to the bias day in, day out, 
as they're trying to fund their companies. Well said. I want to talk about the loneliness real quick before we move on to what's been going over at the firm. One thing I've always noticed about K4 um, up until recently is that it wasn't taking outside capital. It was using the capital from both of you and using that to invest in hundreds of companies. You know, tell me this is a leap, but I'm wondering if part of that was because you had this radical stance on what kinds of startups are venture-backable opportunities and if that made you, I don't want to say unpopular, but lonely. Because yeah, eventually that changed. So I, I guess I would love to start looking back at the history of it. What made you guys use your own capital? Well, the history was that it gave us the flexibility by using our own capital to do things differently, to try things, to be experimental, because if we failed, it was just on us. And that seemed like that would let us put our efforts where we wanted them to be, rather than in managing relationships with LPs. After the impact report came out and we were able to demonstrate that this was not concessionary and it was top quartile returns, and a period of time after that, our, our partners, Brian and Ulili, through their own process, decided that they were ready to go raise a fund with our blessing, which had been the long-term plan all along. They were able to go out and raise $126 million in Capor Capital Three with outside investors. We are an important LP, but in the minority on it. I think it demonstrates that at least in 2022, 2023, this is fundable just based on track record, because they have gone out and done it. And we are very happy for that. We just didn't want to have outside capital. We wanted to be out on the edge, to try something new, to be experimental. And we honestly didn't know what would happen, but it was a good outcome. <laughs> I think it's also worth pointing out, in the early days, there were a couple of people, both white men, who were thinking about working with us and decided we weren't going to make enough money, and they went elsewhere. So I uh, hope they're kicking themselves and I hope they've <laughs> learned something. But it also allowed us to do things like start the Summer Associates Program. Yeah. Which since Brian and Ulili have raised outside funding, we've moved outside of Cape or Capital and moved it over to our foundation. LPs in general just want you to be very disciplined and only spend the money on investments. Whereas we think that a lot of the things we did in the early days of Capor Capital actually made us stand out as attractive to some of the top talent out there. So that we think we got into deals specifically because of the platform services and other activities we did in building the tech and VC ecosystem. Yeah. And just a moment about the Summer Associates Program. Lily came to us when she was a brand new analyst and said, can I start a Summer Associates Program? <laughs> she had had the experience of being in a cohort-based program a scholarship program for underrepresented students of color at UC Berkeley who got in race blind under Proposition 209 that killed affirmative action in public institutions in California. So she got in race blind, as did all of her colleagues, and then applied to our scholarship program. So we had that experience with her. She came to us and said, I want to start a summer associates program. And we said, great. Most firms wouldn't be able to do that under LP scrutiny. Yeah. And as it turns out, Brian Dixon was our first summer associate. 
So it's rather magical that those two are now the co-managing partners. Yes, let's talk about that. I mean, I love the, the cyclical nature of both the investments and the staff, but let's talk about the decision to step away first. And then I want to definitely get into Brian and Uli. So yeah, what made you both realize this was the exact time? It's been almost nine months. So I'm also curious what you've been up to since you stepped away too. Well, the decision came before that, and we had a very disciplined process of stepping back. It's actually been two years since either of us have participated in a Cape or Capital investment decision. New investments. New investments, right. We're still very involved with the portfolio from the earlier funds. We still meet with Brian and Ulili and the investment team weekly following all the companies that we've been involved with for years. So starting from two years ago up until when we officially stepped back was, again, a very well-thought-out process. Yeah, Brian and Ulili were very involved in all of the decisions along the way. We cared most about how this would impact their futures and the futures of our entrepreneurs. And to be clear, we did not ourselves want to sign up for another 10 years of being uh, general partners responsible for other people's money. We're you know, not, not in an age where that makes any sense. So it was a natural time in our lives to pass the torch. And Brian and Lily had been partners for years. They had led most of the deals in the prior fund. They had demonstrated over and over again their readiness and the timing of it specifically was when they said now is the time that we want to go out there and raise i think it doesn't happen enough it doesn't happen enough that i see the founding partners of a firm step back and make way for the top talent and i'm not going to ask why because i don't know if we know all the answers but i am just going to ask a little bit about how your decision was received both from your close friends and even just like after it was announced how people reacted now that so much time has passed. Were you surprised? Well, like everything in VC, it was a mixed reaction. (laughs) Yeah. Some people questioned it. Some people said really awful, rude, racist things to us or to Brian and Ulili Uh, about the only reason they were where they are is because of us, which is patently false, not to mention races. But other people have applauded our decision. A prominent woman partner at a Sand Hill Road firm reached out to me after it became public and said, succession planning is rarely done in venture capital. And when it's done, it's done terribly. Yeah. So congratulations. (laughs) So, you know, when we said we're stepping back, (laughs) what people said, okay, so what are you going to get up to next? Because I know you're not the kind of people who are just going to go and sit on the beach all day. Right. Which has turned out to be the case. (laughs) My takeaway so far is that both you and Frida are are set on not being tied to other people's money, which I think is so smart. (laughs) Left before LPs got in the picture. Now you, you are, I guess building again or continuing to build within your other parts of the Cape War universe of, of, of products and businesses? Yes, exactly. So we're more involved in the foundation. Okay. The foundation has a small investment team that is investing its endowment. And we often co-invest with Cape War Capital, which is really fun. Awesome. And sometimes we invest a three-way with our own personal funds. Similar 
kinds of criteria about the businesses that we are backing. We've also done a lot of investing into GPs. So managing partners of their own funds. Our sweet spot is, as you alluded to earlier, we are often the first check into a fund, especially a fund run by a Black or Latinx woman or man. Does this feel like something you're going to be doing for the rest of your life? Or do you feel like you're also open to a new challenge? I don't have a job for you. I'm just wondering. (laughs) Well, my perspective is that Frida is extremely intent on doing what can be done to increase diversity in the world of investments and in the venture capital sector in particular. So this emphasis on investing in funds, I think, has already led to some new activities that she and I and the team have worked on of convening the funds that we've invested in to see what they need and how we can be helpful and some activities. And you know, we like to start things early. We basically do things at seed. If it goes well, what will happen, and it's it's too soon to know, but if it goes well, it will become more of a self-sustaining set of initiatives of some kind that we will be less involved with and we will step back from. And I suspect we'll keep doing this in one form or another as long as we're able. I love that. There were many firsts by Cape or Capital. We were the first venture firm to put a founder's commitment in place. And that was seven years ago already, where we said in January of 2016, we're not going to write a check unless the founder makes a commitment to building a diverse team and an inclusive culture. We said, forget it. You don't need a warm intro to pitch us. Warm intros are biased. And soon after, many other firms started accepting pitches via their websites. We started the summer associates program. So what we're doing over on the KPOR Center side is the same kind of firsts. We brought our GPs together. We said, what do you need as small funds, as first-time funds? What do your portfolio companies need in these rocky times to stay afloat? And we're looking at launching from the foundation side some platform services that would help those funds be successful and help their portfolio companies be successful. I haven't seen that. And we are also separately but relatedly scaling up the Summer Fellows Program, Summer Mm -hmm. Associates, to include outside partner firms where we recruit and place Summer Associates. We bring them together across all those firms as a group for professional development. Last year, it was like 18, 19. This year, it's going to be 25 plus across at least seven or eight venture firms. And so that that program is now in the process of scaling to open doors to folks who otherwise might have a very difficult time having a first experience in venture capital. So there we go. I mean, the universe is growing. As someone who loves frameworks, I just have to say thank you for having everything all feed into each other so beautifully. (laughs) Um, (laughs) We're almost out of time. So I'm going to end us with some lightning round questions. I only have two. Okay. And actually, I'm going to see one from Mitch that I got from the book. The first question is, if you could invent anything, what would it be? I would invent something that let people more easily tap into their own inner resources of kindness to themselves and to others. Wow. (laughs) That would be great. I would love that. (laughs) Frida, what would you have? I would invent the end of racism. 
I can't follow that up. I'm just going to invest, be an early seed writer in both of those ideas. Um, my, my last question is, what is the best advice that you have ever received? This can be personal, professional, somewhere in the middle. Well, when I was working at Lotus, the company that Mitch started where my job description was to make Lotus the most progressive employer in the country. I haven't seen that job description since, but I was getting all kinds of headhunter calls and I actually went and interviewed and I came back and I told the COO of Lotus that I'd gotten these job offers yeah, and that I decided not to take them, but I had decided to leave Lotus also and go start my own business. And he said to me, you're in your 30s, go do it. Because if you don't like it, or if you're not successful, you can get back into corporate America. You can't do that so easily in your 40s. I love that. That actually inspired my move to SF. It was like, if there's any age to do it, do it when you're in your 20s. And I'm so happy. Exactly. Yeah. Best piece of advice I got actually was around the same time in my career at Lotus, we unexpectedly became hugely successful. I mean, I was this very bright kid that nobody thought was going to make anything of himself in life. But there I was and running this big rocket ship of a company. And one of our directors said, so, you know, Mitch, you were in virtue of the success of this company going to have lots of opportunities. Almost any door that you want will be open to you. That is a precious and rare thing to happen. Please make the most use of it. Do it in a way where you're actually giving something back and helping other folks. That's the just way to address the very good fortune that you've had. Oh, I love it. I love it. And I see it. So thank you both so much for coming on Equity, talking to me about your world. Where can people listening find you and the awesome work that you're doing? We can be found at Kapor, K-A-P-O-R, kaporcenter.org. We can be found on social media. We can still be found at kaporcapital.com. Perfect. I will link all the things in our show notes. And again, welcome back on the show anytime. Thanks again, Frida and Mitch, for spending some time with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Oh, this was great. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you. And everyone else, we will chat with you soon. Equity Wednesdays are hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter, Natasha Mascarenas. We're produced by Teresa Locansolo with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development and Henry Pickovet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thank you so much for listening and we'll be back next week.